Welcome to Mnemonic, a podcast about memory. My name is Ryan Trussell. I'm a writer and a father. And each week I'll tell you a story about my life, threading connections between the past and the present moment, finding resonances that often even surprise me. Just a quick note. Uh, These are autobiographical stories that involve people other than myself. I've done my best to protect the identities of those I could without sacrificing clarity in the stories. And in all cases, I've done my level best to make sure the people who aren't me come out looking the best they can. So if you see yourself in any of these stories, please keep that in mind, and I hope that you understand. All right, thank you very much. Episode 11, Jeans to a Pool Party. This is why I was in love with Kim. I was 12, and she was a girl. That was all I really needed. There was more to it than that, but not much. Like the plumage of exotic birds, there were meaningless indicators of which girls were lovable and which were not. The first was what we sometimes called the wave. Girls would style their bangs so they rose off their head and curled forward like the headdress of a runaway Seuss character. The amount of hairspray necessary for this feat begs belief. The second was a style of blouse with black sheer poet sleeves, translucent enough that you could see the skin of the arm if you looked long enough. And we boys tried, but being 12 is all about quickly looking away, never being seen, seeing. Girls were like eclipses. You spied them indirectly, or it burned your eyes out. Kim, meanwhile, displayed both the wave and the poet sleeves, and that placed her in that rarefied stratum of girls whose air we wanted to breathe. That Kim was my selection from that subgroup was likely solely predicated on the precarious nature of the alphabet. We sat near each other in homeroom. If my mother had married someone else with a surname lower in the alphabet, it might have been an Amy or a Beth. But T is for Trestle, and I was in the final row right near Kim. We should just confess right now that we boys wanted girls not for their sake, but for our own. We wanted our fellow boys to see girls wanting us, granting us status. If we had been younger, it might have been rare baseball cards. We wanted girls in that they made the other boys notice us. I would have known what to do with a girl if I'd found one. The year before, it had been a girl named Saren. She called my house the first girl to ever do so. I didn't even know they did that. Three times in one day. The first time she spoke to my father. Then my father spoke to me, an awkward walk and talk around the block as he tried to suss out what I knew or needed to know about girls. The answers being nothing and everything. She called the second time that evening and I hung up on her, fear and embarrassment in the heavy swing of the phone back to its cradle. She called back a third time, and that time I listened a little, talked a little, and through this conversation she learned all she needed to know. She never called me again. So I called her. Something happened to me waiting for her fourth call, the one that never came. It had meant something to people that Saren, puffy-sleeved and high-banged, had deigned to call me. 
I was new in town, and the mystery of what she may have wanted gave me gravitas. I was no longer a foundling. I called many times and never spoke to her. Her older brother or her father always answered the phone. I adopted an embarrassingly low fake voice, attempting to disguise them from men who didn't care who I was. So I would cough, adopt the low register, and assume the indifferent tone of a salesman, and ask for her. She was never available, none of the times I called. And so I said okay, and hung up. I had to invent reasons that I called, even if the only person who knew these reasons was me. I was working on an animated film for a school project, and I had convinced myself with zero evidence that Saren would make a good animator. I was really interested in animation in sixth grade, studying the credits of Tiny Toon Adventures and reading the biography of Disney cartoonist Bill Peet over and over again. That was the pretense I concocted to justify calling Saren. Was I going to ask her if she referred Chuck Jones or Fritz Freeling? Thank God she was never home. That summer I was in Provincetown with my mother, and while in a candy shop there, I thought I saw Saren. We were over an hour away from home, in a tiny candy shop the size of a bedroom, filled with saltwater taffy and rock candy. It would have been a remarkable coincidence that my one true love and I would find ourselves both there in that moment. I skulked around the store, trying to be seen and not be seen. Saren was a very unique-looking girl, even compared to her two sisters. She was singular and def definitely herself. She looked like no one else I have ever seen, including this girl in the candy shop. But I had convinced myself it was her, even after she had left the store, my heart racing. I may as well have been suffering from prosopagnosia, that I could not tell one face from another. I haven't been able to eat rock candy since without being reminded of the capriciousness of desire. So then there was Kim. The alphabet brought us together. If by together, I mean two children not even vaguely aware of each other's intrinsic selves. To me, Kim was the epitome of female beauty and grace. I don't know who I was to Kim. But I do know that my video project that year centered around an elaborate parody of the 1980s version of the game show Hollywood Squares, reruns of which I watched religiously and inexplicably after school every day. I was, it was wise enough to not attempt to ask Kim if she wished to participate. In the closing days of seventh grade, a miracle occurred. Kim invited me to her birthday party. I'm sure there was no formal written invitation, because I certainly would have kept it, framed it under glass. It had to have been an oral invitation only, and as such it attained a ghost-like, mysterious character. Had she really said those words? I could have used the opportunity of the party invitation to talk to Kim some more, but I just said okay, or cool, or thanks, or sure, and averted my eyes and went back to labeling my map of ancient Mesopotamia. I had no follow-up questions, and as such, missed important, salient details. Even if I had had those details, I would have still made bad decisions. For my first boy-girl party, I selected to wear a purple Batman Returns t-shirt featuring Danny DeVito's horrific portrayal of the Penguin. I also decided it would be the ideal time to finally shave the fuzzy brown mouse ghost that had begun haunting my upper lip that spring, nicking myself for the first that would become a thousand times. It was also a dry shave with a single blade razor, and it left me tender and sore razor burn all over my face. 
I also imagined, probably from outdated movies and television shows I preferred, that everyone would be bringing records to play. I may have seen it during a party scene on The Flying Nun. So I brought a handful of my favorite vinyl records, including the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever. Did I mention this was 1992, and both boomboxes and CD players were ubiquitous? I shouldn't have been surprised when I arrived at Kim's and found out she had no turntable, but I was. I was also surprised that at a 13-year-old birthday party where the main soundtrack was the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic that nobody was interested in listening to the Bee Gees. These were all unforced errors. But had I used the opportunity of Kim's oral, spoken-out-loud-to-me invitation to talk to her, to ask any follow-up questions, I might have learned that since it was summer, and since Kim's family owned a pool, it was a pool party. And I came dressed in tight black jeans. When I walked through the gate into Kim's backyard, the whole party already in full swing, everybody was looking at my legs. In some ways, this was another unforced error. It was the end of June. I could have worn shorts, but I chose instead to wear the oh-so-hip combination of tight black jeans, purple Batman t-shirt, and boat shoes without socks. And for my trouble, the boys of the party picked me up and threw me in the pool. Most of them were boys from the other side of 7th grade hallway. Boys I knew by face, but not always by name. They were boys I imagined were dumber than I was, since I was in the advanced honor classes, and they were taught by the football coach. But who wore jeans to a pool party? Who was really the dumb one? The water filled my nose and mouth, and also the sleeves of my Batman t-shirt, and the legs of my black jeans. They both swelled with chlorinated water and made it difficult for me to write myself. Then a boy I barely knew, short and seemingly overly conscious of it, God the muscles he had, marched down the stairs to the shallow end, cackling at my misfortune as I tried to swim to solid footing or to grab onto the edge of the pool. He put his strong hands on my shoulders and pushed me down under the water. He thought this is what I deserved for dressing the way I did, for primping and preening, for putting together what I thought was the best version of myself. Didn't he, didn't all of those boys, didn't they realize I'd done it all for them? I spent the rest of the party sitting in my wet clothes on a towel in Kim's basement, watching MTV. One video I saw several times in their rotation that afternoon was Jeremy by Pearl Jam, in which the title character responds to the bullying of his classmates by bringing a gun to school and killing them all. It was an impulse I understood. I'd been rescued from the pool by a girl named Nicole, who pulled the boy off of me and helped me to the shallow end. She kept her arms around me until we got to the lawn, asked me if I was okay, if there was anything else she could do to help. There was a titanium baseball bat lying before us on the lawn. I was tempted to ask her for one more kindness and see if she'd be willing to bash my skull in for me. I forgot the records at the party, and never saw them again. I spent the rest of the summer working on an autobiographical comic strip about seventh grade, narrated by a cartoon version of Kim, in which her car character relayed the hilarious hijinks of my character, with a mixture of exasperation and just-below-the-surface infatuation. It was my plan to spend the remaining nine weeks away from her creating a crudely drawn comic book in which she starred as someone who found me irresistible and charming. 
With my friends, I hatched a plan in which we would create these comic books, photocopy them, and sell them to our classmates. Within this plan was another secret plan which involved Kim buying the book, reading it, and realizing it was the truth. I never ended up finishing it. The girl I drew in his pages looked nothing like her, acted nothing like her. But I didn't notice that at the time. It hardly mattered to me. In eighth grade, I forgot about Kim and moved on to a series of other girls. In each case, I did something obscure, esoteric, and inscrutable to let them know how I felt. I sang Girlfriend is Better by Talking Heads by my locker every morning until one of them noticed. I walked four miles to one of their houses uninvited, found they were not at home, and then walked back. One girl asked me to DJ a church dance, and I opened with the Roger Waters song, What God Wants, then followed up the blasphemy with a bunch of instrumental disco tracks, until someone brought in a boys to men tape, and I was relieved from duty. One night spurred on by my friend Tony from out of town, I called a girl named Stacy and bluntly asked her out. She demurred, saying her dad didn't want her dating which is as good as excuse as any. I hung up the phone quickly, relief. What the hell was I doing? Tony wasn't from around here. He didn't get how these things worked. To utilize an oft-abused cliche about dogs and cars, what the hell was I going to do if I caught one? There was a girl named Jenny the next year in my French class. She was beautiful and popular and dating a boy older than all of us, but still. My French teacher teased me about my obvious infatuation, and I explained that Jenny looked exactly like my mother did in high school, which was A, demonstrably not true, B, bizarre because I didn't get along with my mother at the time, and C, truly bizarre because what boy admits liking a girl that looks like his mother, especially when she doesn't? It's like I didn't even understand why boys like girls in the first place, and was just providing my best guess. I volunteered to work in a soup kitchen with Jenny and her mother, an attempt to demonstrate my virtue. In her mother's car, a Pink Floyd song came out on the radio. Jenny said she liked it and turned it up. Was that the reason? That we both liked Pink Floyd? I wondered about that the entire day I spent serving turkey soup to Brockton's homeless, watching her beautiful smile as she handed the men their bowls. By the time I was dropped off back at home that evening, maybe only Jenny's mom seemed to have noticed I was even there. If mothers were able to elect their daughter's boyfriends, I would have been a first-round ballot every time. But I did not know what I wanted from girls, or what I could have that they would want from me. So by the time I fell in love with Meg my senior year of high school, I was still no closer understanding. I told every human being I met, including her mother, about my feelings. Everyone except Meg herself. I was able to convince her to go to the prom with me, and showed up wearing a Scottish kilt, and after hearing her lament at not owning it as a child, a copy of the board game Hungry Hungry Hippos. Driving over there, the game wrapped on the seat next to mine, I was convinced this gesture would be enough, was romantic and pure enough, that she would love me back. She seemed touched, perhaps a little confused, and then she went off to the prom with a boy in a skirt. It was overall a lovely time. We danced a bunch, and I had made quite a sensation in my kilt, and many of the girls I had grown up with, who I'd be graduating with that week, came up for pictures and to dance with me. It was a nice night. With each girl I danced with, 
Steve, Saren, Sarah, Beth, Janine, Amy, Katie. There was a moment where I thought, maybe now, maybe now will be the moment that someone will look into my heart. But once again, all anybody was looking at were my legs. Thanks as always to Joel McKenna, as well as Amy Reichenbach and Daryl Morey. Episodes of Mnemonic can be found in mnemonicpodcast.tumblr.com, mnemonicpodcast.soundcloud.com, and also in the iTunes store. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Have a great night. Mm-hmm.